It's our privilege this morning, actually, to have with us Kelvin Crombie. Now, Kelvin has uh, been with us a couple of times. I think most of you will have some kind of background for who Kelvin is. Um, he's probably going to explain a little bit of that, so I might not need to explain too much. But um, Kelvin has spent many, many, many years living in Jerusalem. Um, he has spent many, many, many years studying history of, of Israel, as well as specifically kind of the connections between Australia and Israel. Um, up the back for when he finishes, he brought a small bookshop with him, um, which is fantastic. Kelvin's a prolific author. Um, I should probably say that first. So he's brought with him a bunch of different resources where you can go and read more and, and engage more with some of the things that he's going to share with us this morning. Uh, Kelvin, if you want to make your way up, I'm going to read Jeremiah 31, 31 to 37. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. Kelvin. Well, thank you for the opportunity of being here. And um, it's quite uh, providential in a sense because a few days ago I received a message from um, Wayne, one Wayne Hollett from Jerusalem. It had just gone into the uh, uh, coffee shop at Christchurch in Jerusalem in the old city. And my daughter said hello to him. My daughter was working there at the moment. And uh, your father and mother were there a few months ago. Is that correct? Half a, half a year ago or something? March. And uh, that's where my, my daughter, who works there, uh, uh, met Wayne and Julie for the first time. And then she recognized them when they came into the compound a few days ago. So it was very interesting to receive a message from Wayne saying, I've just had a chat to your daughter. So here we are a few days later, and here um, Lexi and I are both speaking to you today. So there's a bit of a connection, uh, I think, at that level. Incidentally, my, um, my daughter has been working there for a number of months, half a year or so, and she was scheduled to have actually flown out on Saturday. But several weeks ago, she changed her ticket to come back at, uh, next year, early next year. And so uh, even if she uh, had scheduled to fly out last Saturday, she said she would not have gone because her heart is to be there with a lot of her childhood friends, because she was born there and grew up to the age of seven. A lot of her childhood friends are actually now in the Israeli Defence Forces, are down near Gaza. 
And um, a lot of the staff at Christchurch, the Israeli staff, have been called up. They're older and they have battle experience. They've all been called up as well. And many of those are also friends of my three older daughters who went to school with these people. So uh, there's a vested interest, and she feels she has to be there in order to uh, give some support to all those young men who are now going in the front line. Not a very pleasant situation, I can tell you that. Uh, Some of you may have heard um, part of my story, but I came from the bush of Western Australia as a young fellow searching, went to Israel, determined to become an Israeli because I felt that was where the answer to life really was. I was going to become Jewish and uh, didn't. And then I heard about Jesus being a Jew uh, at the dawn service, the Easter dawn service in Jerusalem in 1981. And that's what turned my life upside down because it was the first time I actually saw the face of Jesus. I actually heard down here who Jesus really was. And he wasn't a goy. He wasn't a Gentile. He wasn't blue-eyed and blonde-haired. He actually was an Israeli. If he came to live there today, he'd be an Israeli. And that is really what got me. Three months later, while in the UK, I finally submitted my life to the Lord, was radically born again. And then a few months later, came back to Israel and then began another 24 years. I'd lived there for a year already. I began another 24 years of living uh, in Jerusalem. I met my wife, Lexi, uh, while I was there, and all our four daughters were born there. Worked in a number of locations, but for 20 years, I served with the evangelical branch of the Anglican Church, based at Christ Church inside the old city of Jerusalem. And uh, you're correct, yes, there's not much probability of missiles landing inside the old city, but unfortunately, um, one of the factors you always have to keep in mind in Jerusalem and those areas is um, random terrorist attacks, uh, knifings and other things like that, so you have to still be extremely vigilant, uh, particularly in a place like Jerusalem where there may very well be what we call sleeper cells. And that is why most people have actually been told to stay on the compound or in the house because there is this fear that others will then begin to jump on the bandwagon, you might say, and get out there and wreak havoc also, which has happened in the past years. Now, I'm sure that each and every one of us, if we have a conscience, we should have a conscience, was doubly um, affected uh, because of what happened the other day. First of all, because we have a heart for Jewish people and the ministry of Israel. Secondly... How can human beings do that to another human being? How can those atrocities happen um, between one human being and another? I've uh, been studying for the last five years the Holocaust. I've been studying and researching what happened to the Jewish Christians uh, in Europe during the Holocaust. And there's a couple of publications there if you're interested. Not very pleasant, uh, not a very pleasant research subject, I can tell you that. It's meant going to... Uh, Death camps, concentration camps, forests where people were shot by the thousands and a whole range of different things. You've got to get very, very close to the subject somehow in order to comprehend it. And on so many occasions, I've actually had to take a step back because I've had a bit of a meltdown. How can you not have a meltdown? Because this subject actually brings you face to face with the face of evil. And Jeremiah was right when he wrote in uh, chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is evil above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And that really is the source of it. That's the foundation of what happened on Saturday. It's the heart of evil. It's the, the heart of humankind who has opened itself. Humans are being opened up to the whole um, force. I call it the, um, the, the evil or the mystery of evil, the mystery of iniquity. Um, You cannot comprehend it with your human mind, but it's a factor. 
And so we have to, in a sense, grasp a little bit about the origins of evil and the ramifications of evil. But I don't want to dwell upon that because we know there is a victor over evil. I mean, the outcome of evil, the outcome of what happened in the Garden of Eden is that there was a penalty of death that would be imposed upon Adam and Eve if they disobeyed that one commandment that Almighty God gave to them. He gave them the wonderful gift of free will, and they can make a choice. They made a wrong choice. And unfortunately, there are consequences when wrong choices are made. And on this occasion, God said very clearly, the consequence of making a wrong choice will be the penalty of death. Okay, you will die. And so that is what actually happened as a result. Now, we know there was an usurper, the form there of the serpent. We know it's a fallen angel called Lucifer who wanted to exalt himself above God. And so as a result of the fall, okay, humankind was impregnated, you might almost say, by uh, the iniquity of evil, which is the consequence of them making that unwise decision and disobeying Almighty God. The result is death. We've heard also in the, in the worship, one of the songs there about the death of Jesus. Okay, so we, there's two deaths here, but the outcome is from one death came darkness and evil. From the other death came light and life. And that is what we need to concentrate upon. It's good to have a, a comprehension, an understanding of the consequences of the first death, separation from God. Okay? But it's more important, much more important, that we also realize the light and life that comes forth from the result of the second death. We cannot understand what happened on Saturday. We cannot understand the presence of bad things in the world, the Holocaust, without comprehending these two opposites, you might say. What happened in the Garden of Eden, which was a consequence from disobedience, and what happened on the cross, which was a consequence of obedience. And we stand in the camp of those who desire to be obedient. But it's important, more important for us to realize, folks, that it doesn't matter what we do, okay? It all depends upon what Jesus did and the fact that we are in covenant union with Jesus. And that is a principle that I sense is so important for Christians to comprehend at this time. We need to understand our status. Who are we? And the best way to understand this, in my opinion, is to go through bit by bit the scriptures that we had read earlier on. So if you can um, open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31 and start off in 31. And I just want to take us through this most profound, um, what's it, about six or seven verses. Herein is the whole gospel of Jesus, the whole purpose for Jesus coming. Herein is who we now are. And herein is written God's plans and purposes for the nation of Israel. I'm going to read from my, my, I think it's the New King James Version, and I'll also be alluding to the Hebrew on several occasions. So you're going to get a couple of Hebrew words chucked out there today, and so this is a sort of a bit of a Hebrew lesson as well. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Right. Now, what have I just said then that's not in your English translations? What word? Cut. Okay. But in the Hebrew, it says cut. So the first thing we have to realize that covenants are not necessarily made. The covenant of, of salt, for instance, uh, is, is made. 
all other redemptive covenants are cut. There has to be a sacrifice for a covenant to be instituted. That's the first thing we have to take on board. Okay? We're talking about a sacrifice in the context of this new covenant being established. Who instituted the new covenant? Who instituted the new covenant? Jesus, in the upper room, when he took the third cup, we just did it today. There's no allusion to it being the third cup, but we took representative of a cup of wine. In the Passover meal, it's called the third cup, the cup of redemption. And Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Folks, every time you take communion, you're referring back to the new covenant that Jesus instituted in the upper room. It's interesting to note that Christians throughout the centuries all over the world, within all denominations, with perhaps the exception of the Salvation Army, they always take communion. They will always say words similar to what Jesus said. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. This being the case, it is imperative, imperative that we understand the principles of covenant. If Jesus said this is the blood of the new covenant. And so Jesus was referring uh, to the new covenant of Jeremiah chapter 31 because there is no other reference anywhere in the scriptures to the words Britachadashah or new covenant. So there has to be a sacrifice. I might in a minute go into the principles of covenant. It depends how long I've got. In actual fact, there is a rally at uh, Forest Place at 12 o'clock. We've uh, got intentions of going there, so I probably won't speak for the hour and a half, which I know you normally allot to a visiting speaker. I might have to cut it down a little bit. Okay, so we got that principle. There has to be a sacrifice. For a covenant to be instituted, there has to be a sacrifice. There has to be the shedding of blood. And in antiquity, all the way through the centuries up until the time of Jesus and thereafter, when a Jewish person or anybody partook of a covenant, okay, there was always going to be a sacrifice. An animal would be killed. The animal would be usually split in two, and the pieces would be separated. What's on the middle of the ground? What's on the ground in the middle when there's two pieces? There's blood and guts. Representatives of the two parties entering into the covenant agreement would then walk up and down between the pieces on the blood of the covenant, and the very act of doing this is basically saying, may it happen to me as has happened to this animal if I break this agreement, if I break this covenant. Are you going to do that lightly? Will that have been done lightly in ancient society? No. In the covenant with Abraham, okay, both parties didn't walk up and down. It says that there was a smoking oven and a burning torch, or a burning torch and a smoking oven, one of the two. But Abraham didn't go up and down between the pieces, so he couldn't actually invoke upon himself uh, a curse if he violated the covenant. Only God did. And so what happens in those ancient societies, the two uh, representatives would walk up and down between the pieces where they would say, what happened to me has happened to this animal if I break this agreement, this covenant. <clears throat> Afterwards, the uh, the... The two portions are taken away, cooked, brought back, and both groups, both parties will then join in a common meal. And you don't know what part of the meat is from the left and what part of the meat is from the right. It's all mixed together. And everybody eats together to show that once there were two, but now there is one. Okay, the commonality of both those groups. There will be a meal that will be shared together. And that's the important principle here. Two parties will then... 
um, agree to work together, to agree to be in unity as much as is possible, but they will agree to actually have a, a common destiny. Their identity doesn't change. For instance, if one group was a, a, a mightier nation, their identity doesn't change. They're still the mighty nation. Likewise, the other entity could be a weaker nation or a weaker group or a weaker clan or a weaker family. Okay? Their identity doesn't change. They're still who they are, but now they have a common destiny because they are now one. In the marriage covenant is a very, very similar principle. And so that is one of the important principles of covenant. Okay? The cutting of the covenant, the spinning of the blood, the swearing of an oath, and then a common meal to show that now two are one. And so here we have this situation which says that the days are coming that God will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, how many people here are actually can actually verify that they are from a Jewish background? Okay, there's just a few. That means most of us are Gentiles. So therefore, most of us who partook of the, the cup and just a while ago are actually Gentiles. We're not Jewish. Yet this covenant is being cut with who? the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And let me tell you, folks, when the scriptures say the house of Israel and the house of Judah, it actually means the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So how in Dickens' name did the rest of us get here? It's God's grace. See, God's intention always has been, ever since Adam and Eve messed up, made a one wise decision in the Garden of Eden, God's decision or desire has always been that there'll be redemption for everybody. Jew and Gentile. However, he needed to have a platform in order to there to be a for his plan of redemption to be fulfilled. See, from the very beginning, God's desire had been that somebody would come who would be perfect, who would be completely obedient to God's kingdom constitution, who would then willingly take the penalty of death that's upon all of us, and would take that, would die and then would rise again from the dead, and therefore legally be able to say, humanity doesn't have to bear the consequences anymore. I've borne it. I've taken the consequences of the sin of Adam and Eve. I've taken the consequences of the sin of humankind, because we're all in Adam. So for that to happen, there has to be a pure, unblemished human being. And for this to happen, God has to have a nation for whom, through whom this human being could come, this perfect human being. And that was the nation of Israel. And so that's why this new covenant is being cut with the nation of Israel. But as a result of what happened, all nations are able to enter in and take the fruits of what Jesus did in instituting the new covenant. Is that clear? And so that's why there is a nation called Israel. And the covenant has been cut with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. They are not exclusively the ones who will benefit. Okay? It's Jews and Gentiles. But it's to the house of Israel, it's to the Jew first, and then to the non-Jew. And so we go on, verse 32. This covenant shall not be like the covenant that God made with his forefathers when he took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That covenant is called the Sinai Mosaic Covenant. So this new covenant shall not be like this one. And God says, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will... Cut. This is the covenant that I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my, your version says law, okay, the Hebrew says Torah. I will put my Torah in their minds and write it on their hearts. 
Okay, Torah is God's kingdom constitution. The Torah, we call it the law, is not a bad thing. Okay, because God wanted Israel to live a good, wholesome life in the land of Israel, and therefore He gave them these stipulations that if you uh, have such relationships or if you eat such food, you'll be blessed. But if you don't have such and such a relationship, or if you eat food that is wrong, you're going to be cursed. Okay, you say, for instance, he tells you not to eat a certain sort of food because you get a bellyache. You go and eat it, you get a bellyache. Whose fault is it? It's your fault. God's already told you very clearly, don't eat it and you'll be healthy. So a lot of the stipulations you'll see in the scriptures are, are revolving around how God wanted the people of Israel to live in the land and to be a light to the nations. And so that's what Torah basically means. Now, it says here that God will write his Torah in their minds and on their hearts. Well, how is this going to happen? It can't be through a chisel on a piece of stone. It's got to have to happen some other way. And we know that in the fullness of time, the spirit of the living God was poured out during the feast of Shavuot, weeks, seven weeks after Passover, upon the Jewish people in Jerusalem, those Jewish people who followed Jesus as Messiah. And then later, in Acts 10, we see the same spirit being poured out upon Gentiles in Caesarea, the home of Cornelius, okay? And they hadn't even converted to Judaism. It was a miraculous thing. And that's when we begin to slowly come into the picture. So God's Torah, his life-giving instructions, are going to be put into our hearts by the power of the Spirit of the living God. And then he says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God speaking, I will be their God. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Now, for us, coming from a Hellenistic, Greek, Western way of thinking, when we hear the word know, we usually think about knowledge. I've got to really cram the stuff into my cranium so that I can pass the exam. I've got to know everything. In Hebraic thinking, it's not exactly the same. To know basically means to have a relationship. Okay, give an example, uh, Genesis 4.1, Adam, Yada, Chava, Adam, knew Eve, and the result was a child. Now, I don't want to go into that too much. This is just one way in which the word know is used in Hebraic thinking, but it infers of the relationship, the close relationship. And God is saying here that he shall have a close relationship with the people of Israel. And he says, from the least of them to the greatest of them, no differentiation. And he says, from the great, um, they shall all know me, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Now we know that when Jesus came, not all Israel was saved. Not all the Jewish people accepted that he was the Messiah. There was a remnant, quite a bit, it was a large remnant, but we know that most Jewish people did not. So here we have the story of the new covenant being instituted with the nation of Israel, but still yet to be fully consummated because they shall all know the Lord through the new covenant. Paul said at one stage in Romans 11, all Israel shall be saved. Okay, What that actually means, different interpretations, but we just say it's a large number, larger than it's ever been in history. So it's still waiting for its consummation. And then the Lord says, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, Jewish people would know full well that for sins to be forgiven and iniquity to be forgiven, there needs to be a sacrifice. There needs to be a repentant heart. There needs to be a sacrifice. 
And here it says that sins will be forgiven. So we know that in order for a covenant to be instituted, there needs to be the shedding of blood. We know that for sins to be forgiven, there needs to be the shedding of blood. So all the way through this, we actually see pointers to what happened to Jesus. Jesus came in the fullness of time, and he was born of a virgin. Now, this is important for us to comprehend. Because if somebody was going to come and take the penalty of death that's upon all of us, that person would have to be 100% obedient to God, 100% obedient to God's kingdom constitution, his Torah. Can any human being be 100% obedient? And so if God desires this restored relationship with humankind, he himself has to come, he himself has to come and live as a human, as a representative human, he himself will have to come and be willing to stand in the place of humanity and take that penalty of death that's upon all of us who are in Adam. And so that's why it's imperative we understand the virgin birth. It's imperative as best we can. It's a mystery, I believe. But it's important that we at least believe in the virgin birth because there's no way in the world that a human being could ever be able to do what God knew he had to do. God desired, you might almost say coveted, but God desired this restored relationship with every one of us, that he could know us, that we could know him. As Adam and Eve did, or Adam and Chava, it's a real name in Hebrew, life did in the Garden of Eden. So God has to come and he has to be willing to take this place of humanity. And that is what happened with Jesus. He was born of a virgin. In the fullness of time, he was going to Jerusalem for the Passover meal. And on the way to Jerusalem, he said to his closest disciples, his closest followers, that we're going up to Jerusalem, I shall be betrayed, and I shall be put to death. Betrayed by the Jewish leaders, put to death by the Gentiles. But then he said, on the third day, I shall rise again. He also said in Luke that his life shall be a ransom for many. A ransom for what? A ransom for us. And so in the fullness of time, Jesus was at the Passover meal, and he took that third cup of the Passover meal and said these words, This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, this is the blood of the new covenant that I'm going to shed. It's going to be my blood. I'm going to die. So the covenant can be instituted, whereby you can then be freed from the sentence of death because I'm taking that sentence upon myself. And so when he was on the cross, he said these words. He said a number of words. He said these words, it is finished. Now in the Greek, that's called tetelestai. I don't know Greek that well. In the Hebrew, if it's translated, it's called nishlam. I know Hebrew a little bit better. Now the word nishlam comes from the same root as the word shalom. It comes from the same root as the word Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. So, as I believe that Jesus spoke Hebrew, not Greek or English, I think there's a very good chance that he would have said this word or something similar. It is finished. What's he saying? The ransom price has been paid in full. The ransom price. So who shall go free? All of us. And so that is what happened. Jesus died and he rose again from the dead. By rising from the dead, there is the proof that he was 100% obedient. Because if he had violated God's Torah in but one point, he would still be in the grave. He rose again from the dead. There's the vindication. There's the vindication that he has paid the price. 
that will let, uh, allow us to be set free. Now we come to the next part of the equation. It's happened. Jesus took the, the penalty. He's paid for it. He died. He rose again from the dead. How does that now affect you and I legally? The death penalty was a legal imposition. So too must there be the release from death and how we are going to enter into it. It has to be legal. In the first century, people, how did you actually have a legal agreement? What was the most effective way of a legal agreement, a binding agreement being made between two entities? Covenant. That is why we need to comprehend those words. This is the blood of the new covenant. Because in the first century, people realized that if a covenant was cut between two entities, if blood was spilt and you walked up and down between the pieces, invoked those words, you knew full well that you had to be obedient to the words that were spoken. And there were witnesses. And so that is why the principles of covenant are so important for us to understand. So, at that point, we are all, if we were there, but the Jewish people who were there, were all in Adam. That's their status. It doesn't matter how many times you went to the temple with a sacrifice, okay, you were still actually in Adam. And so at that point, we have to make a decision. We have to willingly make a decision. We call it repentance. We have to say we no longer want to remain in Adam. We want to transfer our allegiance to being in Christ which means in covenant union with Jesus, because the two shall become one. You see, we couldn't do a bean. We could not do one single solitary thing thing to set ourselves free from prison. We're in prison. Who paid the price to let us out? Jesus and Jesus alone. So when we willing decide that we're going to come into covenant union with Jesus, it means that now everything that Jesus has done is now ours. Not because we've done it, but because we are one in covenant union with Jesus. It's just like David and Goliath. In that particular battle, Goliath was a representative for the Philistines. David was a representative for the Israelites. That means the two armies didn't have to go to battle. I mean, there was going to be a battle between two people. One would live, one would die. In the battle, the Israelites were not at all confident that David would be victorious. The Philistines were overconfident that Goliath would be victorious. Who won the battle? David. And then it says, the Philistines, you see, in those days when two representatives went to battle, it meant that whoever won... One for his nation, one for his army. And the other nation had to come under them and vice versa. If you lost, you'd actually have to submit yourself to the victor. But when the Philistines lost, they took off. And then it says the Israelites, who until this point were full of fear, they had no confidence in their representative man. It says the the Israelites suddenly rose up and shouted. They took off after the Philistines. What gave the Israelites the right to go from being cowards to suddenly being filled of, full of joy and taking off after the Philistines? What do they do to win the victory? On a scale of 1 to 10, what did the Israelite army do to win the victory? Nothing. Who won the victory? David. On a scale of 0 to 10, how many? 10. So the Israelites... Gained the victory because of what their representative man, David, had done. Folks, that is what it is for us. Who won the victory? Jesus. Scale of zero to 100? 
100%. What have we done? Nothing at all. He is our representative man. We are in covenant union with Jesus. He's won the victory over sin, over death, over Satan, over darkness. That's the message that we've got to proclaim today. So, yes, there's evil out there. There's darkness out there. There's everything out there. But what message have we got in this day to proclaim? Jesus, he's won the victory. May I encourage you to understand these principles. May I encourage you to go back and look at Jeremiah. Comprehend. There's a few uh, publications down the back on the subject matter if you're interested. But understand your status right now. Understand who you are right now. That's what we need to take out to society today. When so many are wanting to, you might say, propagate darkness and evil, We've got another message to take out. In conclusion, may I ask, is there anyone here today who's never surrendered their lives, who's never crossed over from being in Adam to being in Jesus? If there's anyone here today, may I say to you, think seriously about the consequences of remaining where you are, but also think of the great blessings that's in store for you of moving over, repenting and moving over your allegiance to being in Christ. Jesus has won the victory. You too will be victorious if you change your status and enter into a covenant union with Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the source of all life and of all light. Amen.